Hey everyone, it's Ella, your host of the Lemon Said Podcast, a platform dedicated to supporting you by discussing all things related to managing your health, wellness, and fitness journey, no matter how many lemons life throws at you. Today, we are speaking with the owner of Life and Family Counseling, who has over 25 years of experience in her field. She has a warm, compassionate, and no-nonsense approach to therapy, and she is not afraid to tell you who and what is more of the problem. She has been registered with the College of Registered Psychotherapists of Ontario since 2015. In addition to her practical experience, her competencies include a Master's of Science in Psychology with a Specialist in Mental Health from the University of Liverpool. She is trained in Cognitive Behavioural Therapy from OISE, the University of Toronto, and she is certified in Marriage and Family Counselling from the University of Guelph. In just a matter of a few short weeks, she will also graduate and receive her Doctorate in Psychology. As an active participant in her community and a strong advocate for changing the stigma around mental health, she uses her social media influence and platform to promote personal empowerment and how we see relationships. Now, I would like to introduce you to Mary Morano. I'm really excited about today's episode. Thank you again for joining us, and I want to introduce everyone to Mary. Hi there. She is my own personal psychotherapist. So, you know, we've seen and heard from a lot of practitioners, but this is a special episode for me because you guys are going to get a sneak peek of what my sessions are really like. (laughs) So no pressure for me, right? (laughs) No pressure, no pressure. (laughs) But first, we're going to get to know Mary a little bit. We're going to go through some of our fun rapid fire questions. Netflix account, owner Steel. Steel. Ah, from who? My daughter. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Julia. What a great daughter. (laughs) Book or podcast? Books. (sighs) We lost one today. (laughs) We'll change your mind by the end of this. (laughs) I do like podcasts, but I am a a book person. person. Early bird or night owl? Both. Most pivotal relationship in your life? My marriage. Do you believe in second chances? Always. And the coolest feature in your home? We did a beautiful renovation, so I have these, I have a vaulted ceiling and uh, the chandeliers in my dining room come down 16 feet, so it's actually really beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. We're going to need a snapshot. For sure. <laughs> um, what, is, what do you think is your greatest strength? Uh, greatest strength is my ability to have compassion for others. I love that. And that is a very, very difficult strength to have. When life gives you lemons, what do you do? I call my therapist. (laughs) See, even therapists have therapists. And and if they don't, don't go to that therapist. (laughs) I love that advice. Okay, so that's the fun stuff. We're going to get into the meat of this interview. And we hope everyone's ready because this is going to be this is going to be a deep interview, but I, I think a very educational one. Um, so we are actually going to start with recognizing symptoms of suicidal behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's very concerning among any age, whether it's young or 30s, 50s. Does it mean anything at a specific age if you're experiencing suicidal ideations or is it normal to happen at any phase of your life? 
I would say it's normal to happen at any phase of your life because, you know, life doesn't go as smoothly as, you know, we sometimes want it to. Um, I do think things are getting a little bit better um, in terms of our language or our consciousness around suicide and suicide ideation. Um, you know, for younger children, there could be um, confusion. There could be things going on in the family. Uh, they don't feel like they can go to their parents for whatever reason, maybe the communication isn't there. Um, and they could also be experiencing some bad things that are happening to them directly. Right. And so um, nobody wants to die. Right. Uh, they just don't know how to live with mm. the pain that they're in. And I think that's the critical piece that people miss when we talk about, you know, self-harm or um, ideation or suicide itself. Right. I love how you position that because that's true. You're not wanting to do it but when you feel like there's no other way out what are your options and I think yeah. it's it's an alternative that often comes up and and slowly slowly think of what happens to that individual they start to disconnect disconnect right. disconnect from themselves and reality would you say um in reality uh, but also um just from their their head and their body mm. right um because that they have to sever that connection right? right they have to dissociate in order to endure whatever it is that they're enduring right right and a lot of times they're not talking about it so what looks good on the outside may not be really matching what's happening on the inside. Right. So I'm I'm curious, this is, it's not an easy topic, I'm sure, to cover in general as, mm -hmm. as a bystander, as someone who may be going through it, and even as a therapist for yourself. But I'm curious, what inspired you to be a psychotherapist? Uh, so um, I often talk about the wounded healer. So the therapist is the wounded healer. And a lot of times we have our own experiences that uh, we go through that, um, you know, it's not by accident that we get into the helping profession. One of the things that is really important, though, is you can't be a therapist and be wounded uh, or impaired and help other people. So what we learn to do is to take our wounds and use them as assets as we come into a therapy situation. And that's sort of been my experience. And I've always been, you know, from a young young age, someone who has had wisdom beyond her years, uh, growing up in a family of dysfunction, a family that experienced a lot of rage. Um, and through that, I was able to um, see the forest through the trees. And uh, that's what happens when you're a child. Mm -hmm. And so think of, you know, this particular topic, um, you know, you have your adaptive child and your functional adult, right? right? And so the adaptive child has to learn how to navigate through their circumstances. Circumstances. And so depending on what's happening in family life, if they've ever experienced any adverse childhood experiences, they have to figure out how to keep themselves safe. Right. And do you feel that it's in terms of the trajectory of your life and becoming a, a successful psychotherapist, it's essentially it sounds like you go through an experience, you recover, you learn from it, and then you share that knowledge and you grow with all the experience that you've had, not only in your personal life, but with the clients that you attain over the years. Is that kind of the path that it looks like for a psychotherapist, for anyone who might be interested in becoming a psychotherapist? Mm -hmm. It can. It's, um, you know, my path hasn't been very traditional. And um, 
again, it's improving today, but um, therapist self-disclosure is actually very taboo mm. in, um, you know, a therapy setting. Right. And so, I mean, obviously it can't be therapist self-disclosure right. uh, inappropriately where the session becomes about the therapist. But um, I do believe my success is in part because I am a huge believer in therapist self-disclosure, that's appropriate, um, with her clients. Right. Right. Um, because I think that it uh, demystifies um, the therapist and it takes out the power imbalance between the therapist and the client when they do come into a session. And I become relatable. I was just about yeah. to say that that was my very first experience with you. It made me feel like you're human too. You can understand me on a different level other than, you know, some of the other therapists who I've met have no idea, no background or inkling as to what they might be going through, if they can even understand what I'm going through. Um, so for me as a client, it actually makes it very comforting. Well, I really appreciate appreciate that, and in my community, I'm known as everybody's friendipist. So, oh, friendipist! Yeah. That's a so, new one. Yeah. <laughs> I love Which that. Which I love, right? Because it really does feel like you know we can have a cup of coffee together, um, you know, as we're sharing, um, you know, and it just feels warm and safe when you know we're in that environment together. Yes, I would agree, and I have to say that out of and this is not to knock any of my former therapists, but it was very very easy for me to. Open Open up with you and be vulnerable because of that warmth. So, you know, if there is anyone who is looking for a psychotherapist, I think that's kind of one of the strengths that you have, Mary. And for me, that's why you stand out as a therapist from my perspective. Um, I appreciate that. I have a tear going on. <laughs> okay, the goal is to make Mary cry a lot. No, no. <laughs> that's, that's, that's also taboo. <laughs> Do therapists cry? Um, like in session or like in general as a human being? Yes. Either. either. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I have been brought to tears. Mm -hmm. um, uh, not tears like blubbering tears, sure. but definitely uh, my eyes well up and, you know, and I call it out when I'm, you know, with the person. I say, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to make the therapist cry or because somebody's like, there's so many stories that, you know, I hear that how can I not, um, you know, feel that empathy and compassion Agreed. And um, yeah, so it does show up in session and, you know, and I don't try to hide that because I think it's really important. I agree. And you're human. Yeah. So I, I would like a human therapist. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that and, and for being vulnerable. What qualifications um, do you have? I have a master's of science in psychology and a specialist in mental health. And currently I am just completing my doctorate in counseling and psychotherapy. So that'll be done uh, shortly. Uh, so exciting. So, yeah, it's very exciting. And I can't wait. It's been a long time. Congratulations <laughs> in you. advance. That's Thank It's you. such a huge accomplishment just to even go through it. Yes. But I'm sure it'll feel that much more amazing when you're done. <laughs> How long have you been in this field? So in private practice, I have been... Um, uh, now, uh, 10 years, uh, five years in the location that I'm at. Mm -hmm. uh, I did start out uh, in my home office uh, as I was doing my case studies for school. Okay. And 
funny story. It was, you know, unfinished basement. I had a little room on the side. Um, and then after a period of time, you get to start, you get to start charging clients. So I was charging $25 um, wow. at the time in my home office because we weren't allowed to charge anymore. And then um, all of my clients after my case studies wanted to stay on as actual clients, which I thought was very lovely. And I was so proud. And so I said to Jim, I said, oh, my goodness. I said, we have to do something about this basement because, you know, people are, are coming to see me. So I was able to stay there for um, those five years. And then it just grew exponentially. And I had to find a bigger space. And, wow. you know, and here we are. Congratulations. Thank I you. actually didn't know that about your story, but now yeah. I feel extra proud. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was everybody's best kept secret, mm. right? So they were coming to my home. It looked like they were going to their friend's house so that, that you know, they could kind of hide that they were going to therapy. Right. Um, but then as, you know, I started to help a lot of people, um, they were spreading the word and then they were like, you know, I had people showing up at my house, knocking on the door. I worked with a lot of families and um, their children struggled with addictions mm. and then when I started to see their children because they wouldn't go anywhere else um, because it was in my home I think they felt a little more comfortable to come uh, there and then to help them through their addictions to get them emotionally sober and physically sober um, you know my house wasn't actually set up for people coming in and out that way right and then I would say to Jim like you know if this young kid shows up at the door and says this is his name just send him downstairs because I'd right. be working and then you know um, if they you know, wanted to use instead of using, I said, come to my place. Right. And they would come to my place. So that was sort wow. of how, um, you know, it was going. And then we had, you know, to kind of move from that location to a bigger location because it uh, just got too busy. Wow. Yeah. Well, it sounds like your journey has been a very interesting one and it you've has. helped a lot of people. <laughs> it has. Um, so actually, addiction is such a great topic. I, th I think it kind of plays a little bit into suicide um there are many stories that are that start with addiction and then go into suicide um i think i think one thing that i really want to mention here is there are more than 200 canadians who suffer from suicide in one day um they may i'd say approximately 12 from my research it is 12, they will actually die from suicide um, each day. And that's a report from the government of Canada. Mm -hmm. And I think what's even more shocking is that in the world, there are 800,000 deaths by suicide that occur somewhere in the world. And it could be from, from illness or loneliness or, to your point earlier, addiction. So do you feel that suicide is preventable? Absolutely, it's preventable, and people actually are not dying by suicide. There's something that brought them there. So anytime someone comes into my office and they're struggling, it doesn't matter what the situation is, but for the purpose of today, uh, we're talking about suicide. The first thing I let them know is that there's nothing wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, something happened to them. Right. And I want to know what got them here, like got them in my office. Right. And so when I asked them what got them there, um, you know, ugh, gosh, so many stories and just those numbers themselves actually bring tears to my eyes. But, um, you know, I wait for it because I already know it's coming. Right. Um, you know, and um, a lot of people who you said, you know, addiction, addiction doesn't come first. Addiction is how they cope. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, and addictions come in many different forms. So uh, we might sort of blow the lid off a lot of topics today, but addiction um, are repeated patterns of behavior Mm. that cause self-harm. Okay. So that could be an eating disorder. It could be substance abuse. It could be extreme sports. Extreme sports as an addiction? Absolutely. Well, extreme sports, not well, it's a, it could be a self-harming behavior when we keep seeking out that type of, you know, feeling or behavior over and over and over again. Okay, yeah. that's me. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I don't know if it's an addiction, but I abs- and I think I've mentioned this to you in some of our sessions, mm-hmm. you know, I don't see myself as having an an addictive personality towards harmful, toxic substances, Mm -hmm. but they could be found in other areas that I never knew. But to your point, I love extreme sports. Well, think of things like, you know, going to the gym. Right. right? We don't know that person might have an eating disorder and how many hours they've been at the gym trying to exercise, right? Because, again, how we think about those things. And you may not have an addiction to extreme sports, um, you know, but uh, you might have, you know, a a drive for something else. Like, what what does that fill in you? What does that give you in terms of that rush or that feeling? Mm. It could be connected to some other things, right? right? Um, You know, there's this uh, story. um, Do I have time to share it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. so there's um, this young fellow that um, they called him Speedy. And uh, so Speedy wanted to uh, always be an Olympian. And so throughout their life, so someone's doing this talk about Speedy. And so, um, you know, he finally gets to this place where he comes home and he has um, a silver medal from the Olympics. And he um, was one of those ski jumpers, right, that does all that twisting and stuff, right, really f- fabulous stuff and he had always chased these extreme sports and uh, so the person who was doing this talk about Speedy um, now goes into Speedy's life because I'm sitting there because Speedy a year and a half later after winning that uh, medal suicides no yeah and so I'm like okay wait for it so they talk about Speedy's life Mm. at five Speedy's sister passed away Um, he had a grieving mother who was not available to him. Um, He had ADHD, Mm. and he was sexually abused. So now put that in Speedy's emotional vault. Right. And it goes untreated for his entire life. So on the outside, Speedy's got this good-looking, smart, successful, an Olympian, and suicides a year and a half later. Yeah. That's so unfortunate. So Speedy not being able to live with his pain, but what does his adaptive child learn how to do and learn how to cope, right? And he's always on the edge. Right. And you're, I, I assume that it, is there kind of this adrenaline rush or hormonal impact that the sport actually has that fulfills a gap at times? Well, think about what happens when we do anything extreme, mm-hmm. right? Um, it releases big blasts of dopamine, yes. serotonin, all those feel-good chemicals, right? Right. So um, that's what we're looking for. We just want to feel better. We just want to numb out or we don't want to feel that pain. Right. So if we think of addictions or substance use, what's the quickest way to get rid of that discomfort? Right. And you do, with substance abuse, you do feel it relatively quick. Of course. So it's, it's an easy correlation to say, oh, I feel great when I do this. It might be a little bit 
harder to make that connection personally for me it made it it's a bit harder for me to see that connection with my physical activities but over time when you look at my pattern I get into things that make me feel good mm-hmm. internally and just about myself you know it's different when you look back and say oh I've had two you know, 24 beers in one night, or you can say, I went rock climbing, I went hiking, I rode my motorcycle, I came in first on the racetrack. It all almost seems to be similar in terms of the feeling that you are fulfilling and potentially looking for. Or the distraction. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Is it a, is it necessarily a bad thing or a red flag? Is it something that, let's say someone is addicted to extreme sports, is it something that we need to highlight and dig deep into, or is it something where it doesn't look good, the actual activity needs to stop? Well, again, the it would we would look at it in terms of if it's causing us harm in some kind of way. Got it. Right? So that's the difference in terms of when we look at, you know, that extreme could be good. It could seem good. Right. right? Um, but what are we trying to distract ourselves from? Right. And all of those things, if we go underneath it, you know, we look at is that person emotionally sober? Mm. So that's how when we look at substance abuse, that's the language that, you know, I use with people, you know, how do we get you to be not just physically sober, right? In order to be physically sober, you've got to be emotionally sober. Agreed. And which one is more critical to come first? Um, well, or is it a chicken and the egg kind of situation? It's a kind of situation like that, absolutely, because you're going to continue to feel discomfort throughout your life. Right. Right? So it's learning how to feel that discomfort. So imagine this is discomfort. Right. right? And so as we continue to expose people to their discomfort, 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 until it fades deeper into the background. So when that discomfort comes up, we know what it's connected to and we don't have to be afraid of it. Right. Yeah. And that's what I teach people, how to, you know, let your feelings, actually I know it sounds a little cheesy, but be your friend Mm. and not there to hurt you, but help you. I also think they're there, and this is something I only learned recently through you, feelings are things that are signaling something to you. Mm -hmm. But also at times, they're just there to come and go. They actually just pass for a moment, but they're never permanent. Mm-hmm. Well, think about it. We we filter thousands of feelings mm-hmm. each day, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, you know, our bodies know how to handle stress, right? Right, and and filter that. And you know, stress comes up, stress comes down. And if we don't pay attention to those stress levels or the things that are packed away in our emotional vault, then what do you think is going to happen? Right? right. The moment that discomfort shows up, that vault door could you know open a little bit, or it could swing open really fast and right. create a lot of discomfort for especially someone who's experienced you know crisis or you know trauma or is dealing with you know um, post-traumatic stress and those types of things Um, you know so your body's there to signal hey something's going on right your fear response has been activated Mm. yeah and what do you what do you do with that when something is activated in you for individuals who may not even be aware that something is activated, what do you do? Is that the, is that the moment when you do seek a therapist or are there techniques that you can do on your own to kind of say, something's happening here for me? What can someone do in that moment when they're activated? 
I think initially is getting to learn um, about your body mm. and learning about your body sense. And, you know, when you get that first, sw there's always the first swish of emotion where somebody goes. I know what that's <gasps> like. Yeah. <laughs> right. Mine um, is a lot like a big heartbeat. And then I feel like I want to cry. Yeah. And, and for everybody, it's going to be something different. something different. But when you're um, like, we'll talk a lot about anxiety, right? You'll hear that as sort of like, I got anxiety, I got anxiety. Right? Anxiety is connected to your fear response. It's just another word for fear. So when you're feeling anxious, that's your emotional alarm going off saying, hey, take mm -hmm. care of me. Right. Right. It's not there to hurt you. It right. doesn't. It's there to make you feel uncomfortable on purpose. Right. Right. On purpose because you got to deal with something. Right. Is it a real alarm? Is it a false alarm? Why am I feeling that way? Um, you know. And if something um, does become, uh, you know, something that you can't deal with, right, or starting to interrupt your daily life or the activities that you, you know, are used to doing, then absolutely go out and, you know, um, interview your therapist. Right. Yes. A lot of people offer free consultations. Mm -hmm. You don't have to just, you know, point your finger and just pick the first person, you know, interview a few so you know what they offer. And if you actually connect with that person, um, does it feel safe? Does it feel warm? You know, do you feel like you can, you know, open up and, you know, be vulnerable with that person? Right. Because you'd be doing that work, hopefully, for a period of time. Right. And how about in the short term? So while you're looking for a therapist, but you're constantly being activated, are there any techniques that you can do at home to calm yourself? Well, we're in the day and age that you can Google just about anything, right? Mm. So you can, you know, go onto YouTube and find, you know, mindfulness practices. You can just type that, that in and, you know, you'll get a whole series of videos. You can do guided meditations to calm things down. YouTube is wonderful for that. You can find a, a meditation for just for anything. Um, there's also self-help books, right? Um, you can just go to that area in the library at the bookstore. Um, it doesn't have to cost you anything, mm. right? Um, you can get a workbook online and you can, you know, do the pages, you know, start in the beginning, not in the middle or near the end. And, and you can actually teach yourself things like cognitive behavior therapy, um, you know, learn how to do thought records and reframing, you know, your your thought patterns. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I just learned this when my last session with you, there are different types of thought records. Um, one that I had done in the past for my previous therapist was a little bit long and drawn out where there were maybe 10 different columns that you mm -hmm. had to fill out. But it was a way of calming myself down because I would react to a situation. And by the end of the thought record sheet, I would see that there are no actual facts to prove that what I'm feeling is appropriate in the moment. But it's a long drawn out process. And Recently, you showed me another way, which was by Byron Katie, where she just has four quick questions. So when you're in a moment or feeling something, you can quickly turn that situation around and see another perspective, almost like playing devil's advocate mm -hmm. for yourself in a particular moment. Is that something that could be helpful in a variety of situations, including having suicidal ideations? Uh, it could. That's a little more advanced, I'm going to say. Fair, <laughs> Just because you've got, you know, uh, years of therapy behind you. That makes um, sense. So this is, that would be a little bit more challenging for someone, um, you know, but in terms of cognitive behavior therapy, um, there's this wonderful triangle around thoughts, feelings, and behavior. Okay. And so if you think about it, we're the boss of those three things mm -hmm. at all times. Imagine you're the boss of your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors. Right. So those are your best friends. 
So if you're having negative thoughts, it's likely you're going to feel crummy. Mm. And if you feel crummy, you're going to engage in most likely negative behaviors or self-destructive behaviors. Right. Right? And if you're feeling crummy, now listen to this, you feel what you think. Interesting. So if you can't actually catch the negative thoughts that are coming up. Right. If you're feeling crummy, that's a really good indication to sit down with your journal. What's going on? What is this feeling that I'm having? What are the thoughts that are running through my mind that might Hmm. be making me feel that way? Or, because they're all interconnected, if I'm using drugs, alcohol, if I'm doing one of those extreme things that are causing me self-harm, cutting, whatever, whatever it is, I'm likely running negative thoughts through my mind. Mm. I'm feeling low, so look at where it's taken me. Right. And that's the easiest way somebody can, you know, um, you know, do that at home, draw that triangle out. And right. then you do the turnaround just as neg- as the one that you're you, right now is you're in the negative one. You can flip it to something more positive. Right. What if I changed that thought? And that will change the way you're acting or maybe inflicting harm on yourself. Mm-hmm. Or change that behavior if that's easier. Go for a walk. Right. Do a meditation. Call a friend. Mm-hmm. Change that behavior. What do you think is going to happen? You're going to feel better mm-hmm. once you've connected with somebody, once you start talking about it. And talking is the best medicine. Agreed. Most people are looking to understand one or two things when it comes to their body. The first thing is, why am I stuck? And this could mean, why isn't my body getting leaner, losing weight, digesting better, sleeping great, or pooping regularly? These are just some of the concerns that you may have. That's why Be Elite has created a five-step assessment. This is the first way of figuring out why you're stuck. It's also their signature way of deciding what needs to be done to get to your goals. So what do they look at in the assessment? They look at hormonal profiling, which is the premise of where you carry body fat related to your hormones. They look at your metabolism and thyroid using a temperature and iodine scan. They look at digestion using a detailed questionnaire that goes through your timeline and history to see origins of issues. Your primal eating pattern tells them what your body seems to like in terms of macronutrients, as well as your Braverman's test, which is the premier way of looking at neurotransmitter deficiencies. Your transmitters being important for mood, energy, ability to fall asleep, and wake up refreshed. All things which relate to our body has the ability to burn fat. This helps them understand why your body is working the way it is and allows them to set up a game plan of what we would do if we worked with you in their signature online nutrition program. This month, the assessment is still on sale for $100, regularly priced at $224. So take advantage of this great offer at beelite.ca today. That's B-E-L-I-T-E dot C-A today. And Be Elite is offering 15% off Metagenic supplements. High-grade supplements used by doctors, traditional, functional, and naturopathic, as well as holistic nutritionists and practitioners. Use Lemon 15 at checkout for 15% off.
right? And uh, when you have a support person, and who are usually our support people, for most people, when you interview them, or when you do a safety plan for someone, it's someone close to them, like a parent, a best friend, an aunt. Speaking of parent, sometimes, you know, we're having this conversation, which is great for adults, because we're more easily able to identify Mm -hmm. when we're triggered by something. Children may not be so aware. What can parents do, or children, if there are children who are listening to this podcast, what can they do to identify negative thoughts and potential self-harm? There are some parents who, you know, they don't really know what to look for in their children, and they find out a year or two later their their child has been Mm self-harming. How do you catch that? So it's 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 a difficult situation all around, and there you know there's no judgment here, um, but parents kind of know things are going on. They have an inkling, you mean? Yeah. So parents need to be attuned to their children. Mm. Children are not supposed to be attuned to adults. We are supposed to attune to children, and children do wonderful things. They act out. So if you've had this quiet child who's always been, you know, with a mild demeanor and all of a sudden is experiencing, you know, or experimenting with drugs and alcohol, um, they're coming home late, they're irritable. Irritability is like the number one, you know, behavior in children that actually can start them on the trajectory to all sorts of other things that can lead into psychiatric, you know, diagnosis or disorders. Right. Right. Um, A child that all of a sudden who used to be social no longer wants to do their social things. They don't want to go out with their friends. Mm -hmm. They're in their room. So like a drastic change of behavior. Absolutely. Their marks drop. You know, maybe they were a straight A student. Now they're, you know, their marks are fluctuating. Mm. Right? Okay. Ask what's going on. If they say they're not feeling well or they're really tired or they're having trouble getting out of bed, you know, explore that with them. Right? Ask them. You know, suicide, no one's going to say, I want a suicide. Right. It's subtle. Right. There are subtle invitations that we don't recognize, like, I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. Mm. Right? It creeps it's really up. hard. So those invitations, right, they've, they've kind of jumped into what we call the river of suicide I when see. you start to hear those things, right? So you want to ask people directly, are you thinking of suicide? Mm-hmm. Is that what you're talking about? You'll get really interesting answers. You'll either get uh, a long pause. Right. Right. So you know the thoughts have been there. I see. Or you might jolt them. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm thinking, but I'm having a really rough time and they want to talk about it. Right. Um, Or someone might say, well, you know, yeah, I've been having those thoughts. Do you think the person who might be having those thoughts would be honest a majority of the time, especially if it's a child? Uh, yeah, yeah, they okay. they mostly are, right? Not in all cases, sure. right? And sometimes, you know, um, people will suicide and we won't catch that. Mm. And, you know, and it's tragic. But, you know, sometimes, uh, like, we 
don't have the power or control to save people, but it's absolutely preventable. I'm really happy to hear that it's preventable because I think oftentimes we think it's not. I think the issue, and I could be wrong here, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the real issue is that we just didn't catch on to it sooner to know that the individual may have needed some support. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, it, it's that that subtlety, right? right. So they're asking, mm-hmm. right? They've reached out in different ways, mm-hmm. right? We may not have picked up on that because, you know, um, I think of being in a crowded room, right? If you asked people, you know, have you taken a first aid course, CPR? Right. You know, maybe the majority of the room would raise their hand because they've probably taken CPR, but nobody takes suicide first aid training. That's actually very true. Right. So nobody's really equipped right. to understand what to look for. What are those subtle invitations? Imagine, you know, not being attuned to your child. How could you possibly pick up on those things? Right. And how do children even learn that it might be an option? I know a lot of children, I'd say early teens, Um, I've heard from a lot of teachers and even therapists that there are a large population of children who self-harm. Where do they learn the behavior? Um, It's interesting. I know people are going to be mad at me, but they learn self-harming behaviors a lot of times from things that they're growing up with at home. So they're exposed to it. They may be exposed to it. They may be exposed socially. Maybe they're hearing things from their friends. Mm. Um, They're not sheltered through social media, right? So they have access all the time. Right. You know, um, you can take an, an eating disorder, for instance, right? If we have a parent parent who um, is looking at themselves in a particular way, who has a poor self-image, who mm. lacks confidence, who says, am I fat? Right? Right. Does this look good? Like children, remember that up. adaptive child? Mm-hmm. They pick up. Right. They're watching. They're observing. They may be hearing things. Um, you know, so yeah. So they're exposed. Even if we're not talking about things, we're talking about things. Okay. And now... Should parents be worried if they have noticed that their children have been self-harming or have in the past, should they be worried about suicide immediately? Now, I don't want like, you know, the red alarms to just, you know, kind of, you know, fly all over the place because right. not, you know, self-harm doesn't necessarily mean uh, they want to suicide, right? right? A lot of times, you know, self-harm can be uh, that disconnection from self, mm-hmm. right? So they start to numb out. It's kind of like that river of suicide that I mentioned earlier, right? right? Um, it could be something and it could be something more. Right. So really you need to investigate more? We want to absolutely investigate that for sure. Okay. And what if your children may not be as forthcoming about what's causing it? Would that be an appropriate time for parents to maybe seek a therapist for their child? For sure. You know, and it's interesting because I've had, you know, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds asking their parents um, to get them some help and some support, someone to talk to. I think it's amazing. And that's the positive side about 
social media and yes. being exposed, yes. right? Uh, one of the things, um, I just finished writing a paper um, about, um, you know, a proposal for having mental health teams in elementary and high schools, right? That. You know, many years ago, at least when I was in grade school, we had a nurse, we had a social worker, we had boys and girls clubs, we had, you know, ways that children could connect and be social. And now being social is very isolating. And mm. I know it sounds like a juxtaposition, but kids are being social on a phone, through screens, through video games, chats. So they're not getting the exposure. So yes, they might appear to be social, but they're isolated at the same time, right. which can be very dangerous. Right. And would you also advise for maybe individuals who might, and this is at any age, individuals who might be experiencing a lot of negative thoughts and self-harm earlier, you were mentioning that talking is a great way to release and, and really get, just get that support. Is expanding your social network helpful in that sense too? We are human beings, so absolutely mm. we need um, a social network, right? right? We need to be – when I said talking is the best medicine, I'm not kidding. And we can kind of, you know, understand that in, through our experience with COVID and the pandemic. Right. Um, you know, the numbers of suicide during that time were just, you know, outrageous uh, for that reason, right? Because the more we're isolated, what do you think starts to happen? We keep going into ourselves, into ourselves, and uh, what happens when we get locked into our mind? Right, right. We will go over that over and over and over again. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it's a way out. Right. Mm -hmm. You know that isolation is actually an interesting area that I kind of want to start with because my next question was a lot about why individuals might attempt suicide at all. So something that I know has been an insensitive question that comes to individuals who have suffered from suicidal ideations before. But this podcast is all about talking about those taboo topics and difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. So in attempt to break a little bit of that stigma or maybe how we are supposed to conduct ourselves around individuals who have a history of suicidal attempts, there are some questions that they received. Well, why did you do it? You are so happy. It looked like you're happy. You have everything in your life. Why did you attempt suicide at all? How do we address those individuals who may not have an insight as to why suicide happens? Well, hence, suicide first aid would be a great place to start, right? Um, so we learn how to have the language. It, and think about it. We don't have... Um, uh, great conversations around death and dying, around hard subjects, right? We don't have um, language around people who miscarry, right? Fertility issues. All of those things, people can be really insensitive. I don't think their intention is to be insensitive. Agreed. They just don't have the language around that. Right. We were right? never taught. Absolutely. And it's still not happening today. I mean, you can't have one day a year and call it, you know, Bell, let's talk. And then it ends there, right? The conversations need to be ongoing. And you, you can see the response on the one day. People are, you know, you know, rah, 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 bell, let's talk. Um, you know, but it doesn't continue. 
right? right? Unless it's something that actually is, you know, uh, close to home, or like you said, you know, somebody who might have been dealing with, you know, an attempt or a family member who is dealing with the loss of someone who has suicided. Right. Mm-hmm. So how do how does one approach that scenario? Let's say it's it's out of genuine curiosity. They don't really know how to approach the topic, but they want to know, they want to help. For individuals who just want to support, how could they approach the situation better in maybe a more sensitive way? I think uh, what you're saying right there, what is your intention for asking, Mm. right? Um, Because when you have the right intention, um, like I want to support this person, um, you know, what does curiosity mean? Right, because if it's gossip, right. then that's a that's a negative intention, and I wouldn't be, you know, having that conversation because energy translates. You're not right. actually asking me that because you're genuinely concerned for me. You just want to know and then talk about it, perhaps maybe you know later with someone else. Right. Um, ask that person. You know, are you okay to talk about this with me? Mm. How can I support you? I love that. Yeah. I think that's a really nice way to approach the situation because regardless of what happened or what caused it, I will be more susceptible to opening up to someone who is genuinely curious about wanting to help me. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes, I, I can't speak on behalf of everyone, but I think, you know, when I'm in a negative mind state, I'm like, wow, you want to help me. Here's what I need right now. I need a shoulder to cry on. Yeah. And the person who's experienced that may not be ready very share all of their story or their details. You know, in the example that I shared earlier about Speedy, uh, I'm sure nobody knew that Speedy was sexually abused mm. um, until, right, um, you know, someone started to talk about it for him. Right. Right. Um, I know that he was also open about his mental health issues and things that he struggled with, but that part, that I would guarantee that that wasn't part of the conversation. Right. Right. Because remember, we can suppress a lot of things. Things can go in that emotional vault and live, you know, in the shadow and deeply in our unconscious. And we may not even know that that's what's the driving force of some of our behaviors. And why is there such a huge stigma or belief around having to suppress some of those emotions or past scenarios? There's shame. Mm-hmm. Right. I did. I did something to bring that on. Right. Children, um, their emotional minds are developed, not their intellectual mind. They can't discern that, you know, um, I didn't bring this on. This is that person's issue or this is mom and dad's, you know, marriage. Right. Um, they think, oh, my gosh, I must have done something to deserve that. Yeah. Mm. So they live with that shame right. through their whole entire life. So why do you think people become people pleasers, fixers? That's- helpers. Right. And then into, you know, when you don't address that and it goes into your adulthood, what mm-hmm. does that what does that look like? As an adult when you're constantly suppressing things that were traumatizing in your childhood, how do adults deal with it? Well, look at what are the two biggest things people talk about? Anxiety and depression. Right? Anxiety is another word for fear, so yeah. they either live in fear or depression, right? Split the word up. 
depression. If you've ever, you know, read any of Dr. Gabor Mate's, um, you know, work, that's one of the first things he says, right? Depression is pushing down all those painful feelings. Where are we going to push them down? Exactly. So at some point, they have nowhere to go. But come up. It's so difficult. It's just, it sounds very simple as we're talking about it. But I think when you're experiencing it and kind of going through the motions, you're not realizing that. Well, think of what happens with your emotions, right? If they keep going into an emotional container, mm-hmm. right? Every container has a max water line, right? right. Or that, that line where you can't fill it anymore. Because what happens if you go over that line? It overflows. It'll spill over. So it doesn't matter how much you start to push down. Eventually, right, there's going to be so much in there that, you know, there's nothing that's going to keep that down anymore. Right. Right. So that's that, you know, whole idea about I don't want to die, but I don't know how to live with the pain either. That's such a great analogy in terms of how your cup overflows, mm-hmm. I'll say. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it, it just it needs to be addressed, but hopefully caught before something like suicide happens. There is a lot of misunderstanding, maybe even a little ignorance, intentional or not, um, and, and fear as the root of stigmatization. These factors have inflicted immense suffering on those who may, per- may be perceived as normal or not normal. The notions that people who kill themselves, there are some people who actually think that they're cowards hmm. or even selfish I hear a lot of those types of comments and thoughts that that persist, while the individuals who are attempting, um, sometimes they're even seen as attention seekers. Does anyone really know, and should it matter, why an individual might be saying, I am thinking about suicide? Is it something that we should dismiss because of the fact that they might just be seeking attention? Mm. Never. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you think. Um, Agreed. You know, the moment someone mentions that, you take it seriously. I, I hope it's nothing. I hope it's just attention-seeking then. Right? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, but you never take for granted that, you know, some might be subtle invitations, mm-hmm. but some people, when they're, you know, talking that language, there's something going on there for them. Um, even if they don't want to suicide, they're asking, they're calling out for help. Agreed. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually, as I'm processing that question, I'm even thinking about individuals who, let's just say, if it was strictly for attention, that in itself is still a major red flag. Even if suicide isn't the result, it's still there's still something that they need support with. Mm-hmm. And I, to your point, I don't I don't know that there is ever a time where we can dismiss how someone is feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, think about what are what are the things that we want in our relationships with others: attention, approval, and support. Right. And for children, if they're not getting those things, right, whether it's at home or in their social circle with their friends, if they're being bullied. Mm-hmm. Right. And then what happens in your adult life? Right. You're going to you carry these things into your adult life. Right. Unless you treat it. Right. I wonder also, could any. I Actually, let me rephrase that. Depression and anxiety, could they be passed down and considered as hereditary and in turn could suicidal ideations also be hereditary? So not hereditary, right? Um, but in terms of 
genetic deep, like disposition, mm-hmm. right? So it may not be in your DNA, right? Um, but again, when we experience certain things, right, we can have generational transmissions, generational trauma, right? So if you grew up in a family that there's been a history of other members that have suicided, mm-hmm. right, um, it starts to change your genetic patterns, mm. Right. So um, and that could be for a lot of different things. Right. Right. Other illness, other disease, um, anxiety, depression, like you mentioned, um, you know, and it's not until we start to talk about things. So that's, you know, what I said before about when someone sits on the sofa in my office, I want to know what got them there. Like we leave no stone and you can attest to this unturned. Like I want to know all the nitty gritty um, because, you know, there's a fine line between, um, you know, people being on. I'm just going to use language like or the ordered side versus the disordered side. I see. And so I don't care how disordered people might come in mm-hmm. because we can we have like this, you know, problem with pathologizing people um, and telling them they're all these things wrong. And right. people want a diagnosis so they can attach something. Oh, it's because of this that I feel like this. Right. And I don't care what that diagnosis is, or um, I want to reel you back in over here. And if you've, you know, um, so think of what happens in our body, right, Mm -hmm. Um, and how things manifest. Because if we don't take those subtle invitations, you know, like an anxiety or depression, that's not happening by accident. Right. When our stress response is up, when we're feeling overwhelmed, if we don't self-care, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to get louder and louder, and then you're going to be dealing with illness, disease, diagnosis. Right. Right. And I'd say a very uncomfortable kind. Of course. Of course. Right. Are there any, this is a little bit off topic with suicide, but I know that there are some diagnoses where they are diagnosed with something hereditary, such as schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of their symptoms turn into suicide ideations. What piece of the disorder is actually hereditary? Because suicidal thoughts are not hereditary, but is it the chemical imbalance in in some individuals that may be passed down from one parent to a child? Gosh, these are really big questions that (laughs) uh, could be topics on their own. schizophrenia is an interesting one, right? I want you to think of someone who's got emotional injuries. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, in the example of I could, if you broke your arm, I could take you to the doctor and we could x-ray that and we could see where the break is. Yes. Right. And then we know the treatment plan, how to fix that break. And then we send you to some physio and it's all healed up. Right. When it comes to emotional fractures, Mm -hmm. I can't take you to the clinic. So when someone has many emotional fractures and breaks in their personality, why do we think that happens? There's trauma there. They can't cope. Mm. So all of those fractures, right, are fractures in their personality Mm. that have not been treated. So what do you think schizophrenia is? It's that extreme disconnect from themselves. Interesting. 
So very interesting. They weren't born that way. Right. But the onset of those things, why did it explode into that? Why does it explode into bipolar? Why are people suicidal? Right. It's not by accident. Right. Right. There's something underneath that. That's just the symptom of. So in that case, would it be safe to say that you can actually safely, let's say, I, I am personally diagnosed, I've been diagnosed with bipolar 2. That's one of my diagnoses. And in the past, one of my therapists have actually said, is that something that you want to pass down to your children? And at the time, I was actually dating someone with their own disorders. Is that another trait that you want to also add to your children? Is it a good idea to have children? So for individuals who might suffer from schizophrenia, is it safe to say that you can actually safely have children and address some of the mental issues that your child may have in their upbringing without having them react in the same way you might have in your past. Is that possible? Well, there's a difference, right, with something being treated versus untreated, mm -hmm. right? So when you use yourself as an example, like when I say we leave no stone unturned, yes. right, um, you've been an active participant in, you know, wellness and self-care and trying to understand, you know, what happened to me and how did I get there, right? right? So, you know, that sort of jump from, you know, disorder to kind of reeling it back in over here right. to the ordered side of I can just put it in quotations, um, you know, um, of course you can have children, right? And so when we sort of look at the history of him, it is important for me to know as a therapist what's in that history, right? right. So we look at people through a biopsychosocial spiritual lens. So if you can think of each one of those as containers, like we look at someone's biology, right? any illness, disease, um, what are the things in that container that I need to know about? Do you live in chronic, with chronic pain? Um, what are all those bits? Mm. Then we look at someone's psychology, crisis, trauma, anxiety can be biological, it could also be psychological. What are all the things in the psychology bucket? Right. And then I take you into how you were socialized. So if you grew up with, you know, any abuses, that's in the psychological bucket, but it's also in how we're socialized. Mm. What were the, what was the dysfunction? What was the messaging? We put culture in there. Right. So there's all these factors that, you know, make someone's big picture or how we see them in their full context. And then we look at their spirituality. Are they connected to source? Are they connected to you know, a social network, right? All of those things are really important to understand who this person is and how they got to this place. It's actually a lot more complex than yeah. than we simplify it to be. Yeah, so my job isn't that easy. I just don't sit in a chair all sure. day, right? <laughs> There's lots of things that go on, um, you know, when we're when we're looking. And this, this is what makes the difference between going to a therapist right. and then going to a therapist, right? right? So I'm a scientist practitioner. So 
I want to dig in deep, like you know this just in your yep. own experience. I sit on the, you, you know, I know some of our sessions are, are virtual, but I sit on the edge of my chair. Like I am right in there with you, and I want to know every part of your story. And what you might not think is important, I'm like, oh my God, that's a golden nugget. It's true. Like I am storing all that stuff, and you know how we circle back to things. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, remember when you said, and this is why, and we make those connections. And it's like, I never thought of that before. I never thought that, you know, my early experience, um, you know, followed me this way into my adult life. It follows us into our parenting. Mm -hmm. Uh, We recreate those things in our love relationships. So this is not by accident. It's by design. Right. Yeah. That's actually an interesting point because there are a lot of times when you will make that connection for me something that I might have been struggling with for decades. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. I had no idea. But then it teaches me how I can move forward and how I can almost undo a little bit of that damage, which is a comforting part for me. Well, and think of children who, um, if their emotional mind is only developed, they can't make that connection. Right. Right. So um, it's really critical when they're going through different stages of development to understand, you know, how to treat them. Right. My next question for you is about medication. Okay. Do you feel that medication is required for individuals who might constantly feel like they're having suicidal ideations? Yeah, medication is a tricky question. So mm-hmm. I'm not a medication pusher by any means, but there absolutely is a place for medication. Right. Fair. Some medications, um, you know, can actually enhance suicidal thoughts. Yes. I've right. Heard of so that. we have to be really careful, and you want to have a really good relationship with a physician mm-hmm. um, who is not just prescribing, prescribing, prescribing. Agreed. And so, anytime there's a conversation between myself and someone that I'm working with, I always ask what the relationship is with their family physician. And or could it also be a psychiatrist who might be prescribing their medication? Absolutely, absolutely. And I've worked with many individuals that have been on the wrong medication. They mm-hmm. have been overprescribed. I don't specialize in medication, so um, but I've been doing this work for a really long time that I know if it's working, if it's not working, um, if something seems strange. I also work very intuitively, so if my gut is telling me to like pay attention, um, and I'm very open and you know um, in session having these conversations. If we can do uh, this work without medication, right. and a lot of times, um, you know, uh, when we start to reel people back in from the disordered side or what is perceived as the disordered side, even if I can get them right on the fine line between those two places, mm-hmm. now we have that chance to kind of really dive into that work. If we can't calm things down enough, mm-hmm. or depending on how long it's been untreated for, then that's where medication you know, can be an adjunct to the work. And all the research tells us that medication and talk therapy or some form of therapy is the best combination. Agreed. Right. And And then you also have somebody monitoring, you know, you while you're on the medication. Absolutely. And I will personally say that for me, 
when I was at the lowest times of my life, um, shortly after my motorcycle accident, I think the best combo that worked for me was having a psychotherapist and a psychologist that I could speak to about what I was going through. But it was also supplemented with me having a psychiatrist that I that I did have a good relationship with, where he really listened to some of the mm. symptoms that were either working or not working on different medications. And we were able to adjust that, I'd say in less than three months, maybe. And we found the right fit that was really good fit for about two years. Yeah. And that's sort of what I warn people, um, like, don't get discouraged if medication um, is the root, right. um, you know, we, it, it, and that's why it's an integrative approach to um, care. Right. Right. And which we should be working towards just as a society in general. Right. And other than medication, there's actually one other thing that I'd like to ask you. This is oh. your therapy yes. in a box. Yeah. <laughs> um, some people may not take to medication well. Mm-hmm. Other people may not think they're there yet. They're just not ready to explore that. Um, they might not even be ready to talk to a therapist yet. This is your package called Therapy in a Box. How can this Therapy in a Box be leveraged for someone who might be struggling with anxiety or depression, PTSD? How can this be helpful as an alternative um, source to therapy? So um, what is really great, so um, Therapy in a Box is sort of like um, just like the packaging of it, right? And it's got some really like neat things in there just to set the stage for therapy at home where you might feel safe. The workbook is actually called Relationship SOS, Ready, Set, Grow. And um, what the – so – the contents in the workbook are from all of the people that I've worked with over the years. Wow. People who have said, I want to take you home. I wish, you know, you could, you know, talk to my partner for me. So um, <laughs> for people who have never been to therapy before, um, you can use this as sort of the stepping stone to kind of get your feet wet, to understand about, you know, your early experiences and, you know, and it moves you into your present day. It's got like, practical tips and tools. And for people who have been to therapy before, they can take this workbook and they can actually bring themselves to much deeper levels Mm. of healing and understanding. So it works both ways. Um, It actually comes with a set of videos as well that, um, you know, uh, personal videos from me that you can use to work uh, with the workbook at the same time. So it's a really great um, combination. I love that. Mm -hmm. I I just love that it's just another tool that you can pull out when you need. Absolutely. And something else. So I've never opened this box before in case anyone's (laughs) wondering, but I'm surprised myself. There's such a cute personal card, um, but there are other things here that you can leverage. There's this is a scented candle that I think is meant to help you relax when Mm -hmm. you're in a moment or if you're having a bath. Um, This is a black stone. Can you tell us a little bit about this black tourmaline stone? Yes. So the stone is a grounding stone. And um, if you turned around, there's a little description on how it helps to ground you, but also work with, you know, people who might be having negative thoughts, um, you know, um, and, you know, those negative thoughts taking them to, you know, darker places. Uh, And what I actually ask people to do with the stone, um, you can just keep it as, you know, um, a reminder, maybe. 
maybe in your sort of meditative, like, you know, safe space at home. But I actually get people to keep it in their pocket, especially if they're um, feeling levels of anxiety. So it's actually something that you can rub that's tangible, that can remind you um, that you're safe, um, how to turn that thought around and things like that. So it's actually really, um, you know, uh, powerful when you when you know, and it's kind of like a, you know, Mary's with you, but she's not really with you. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And then there's the perfect match. Oh, yes. These are for the candles. Yes, me, myself, and I, the perfect match. And a beautiful pen to fill out your workbook. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for this workbook, but I, I'm excited to use this as a resource. Yes. There are times, so I see you on a biweekly basis. Um, I think that's something I've never covered before on the podcast is frequency. Um, I think it varies for everyone. It depends on how what you're going through and what phase in life you're in, how often you might need a therapist. I think biweekly has been working for us given my current situation. Mm -hmm. But there are days when I'm like, it's three in the morning. I feel distraught. <laughs> I want to call Mary, but I understand that you are human. You have a life. You have a schedule. I, I sleep at three in the morning, by <laughs> the way. Yes. <laughs> Note to self, I can call yes. her. <laughs> but this is such a great tool that I am very excited to add um, to my toolkit. Excellent. So thank you. Thank you. And um, where can individuals find this therapy in a box? So right now you can get it through uh, the clinic, Life and Family Counseling, and it'll also be up on uh, my website and, uh, you know, it'll be ready for purchase. Perfect. And what is your website? Uh, lifeandfamilycounseling.com. And uh, yeah, so if you just, I'm usually all over the place or you can find me on Instagram at Life and Family Counseling. And uh, yeah, just click in the bio and you'll find the link to uh, the workbook. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this great knowledge with us. I really hope that some of our listeners have found a little bit of comfort in this episode. And hopefully if they've never thought of seeing a therapist before, Mary is an option and available. If this episode resonated with you, please feel free to reach out to either myself or Mary directly. Um, but you are not alone. And I think that's one important message that I really want to leave our listeners with. Is there anything that you'd like to leave our message, a message for our listeners? Yeah, no, uh, talking is the best medicine. Um, and if that can be your takeaway uh, from, you know, this episode, then we've done our job. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned because in a few weeks time, we will actually be meeting Mary again to talk about relationships. So there's a relationship SOS in here and we're going to dive deeper into <laughs> that in a future episode. So stay tuned and thanks for listening. Thank you. For 10% off the workbook and therapy in a box, Life and Family Counseling is offering our listeners with a special promotional code valid between September 21st, 2023 to September 31st, 2023. Simply email info at lifeandfamilycounseling.com with the code LEMONADE10 or visit changedbymary.com to place your order today. Don't forget to use Lemonade 10, that's Lemon AID 10, for 10% off your order between September 21st and September 31st, 2023. Thank you again for tuning in, and don't forget to subscribe, like, and share. Bye for now, and don't forget to make lemonade. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical diagnosis or treatment. 
Listeners are encouraged to seek assistance from healthcare professionals on thelemonsaid.com or your nearest healthcare network. Crisis helplines are available to you 24 hours a day. Audio for the Lemon Said podcast was engineered and brought to you by Shoreline Sound Studios.